thinking from the provider perspective, I see contraceptive coercion as both an interpersonal and a systemic problem. Um, interpersonally, we need healthcare providers to value the autonomy of their patients, to identify and challenge their own implicit biases, and to work to deliver patient-centered care. But we also need system responses. We need medical education programs and healthcare systems to highlight patient autonomy as a care goal, rather than focusing on contraceptive uptake and effectiveness. Um, providers need to have enough time with a given patient in order to really engage in shared decision-making. Reproductive coercion, any behavior that interferes with somebody's ability to make decisions about their reproductive health, can happen in the context of intimate relationships, family relationships, or even in healthcare settings. Dr. Laura Swan, research scientist in the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health Department of Population Health Sciences and the UW Collaborative for Reproductive Equity, joined the Women's Health Cast to talk about her research on reproductive coercion and why she thinks it's important for patients as well as providers to understand coercion and autonomy. From the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's Health Cast. I am very pleased to welcome Dr. Laura Swan to the Women's Health Cast today. Dr. Swan is a research scientist in the Green Inequality Lab in the Department of Population Health Sciences and a member of the UW Collaborative for Reproductive Equity. Thank you for being with me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, we're going to talk today about an area of your research in um, reproductive coercion. Can you tell me a little bit about this area of investigation and uh, why you kind of chose to focus your work on this for the time being? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess I'd say, speaking about my research a little more broadly, um, I research reproductive health equity and access to contraception and abortion. Um, so um, in the past, I've done work on how policy impacts access to contraception and on racism and bias in healthcare and on financial stress and resource deprivation as barriers to contraceptive access. Um, but more lately, um, I have a lot of my work has been focused more specifically on, um, like you said, reproductive coercion um, in intimate relationships and in patient provider interactions. Can you tell me a little bit about what what drew you to this kind of work? Why why this was an area of research you wanted to focus on? Yeah, absolutely. So my training and degrees are in social work, um, and I used to work as a hospital social worker uh, before coming to a research career. And my work and passions have always been rooted in social justice and equity. And I just fundamentally believe that all people deserve the right to sexual and bodily autonomy, and that it is unjust when we see disparities in health and healthcare that are rooted in racism, sexism, classism, and ableism. And the way I see it, people's entire life trajectories are shaped by their ability to determine when, if, and how they have children. Um, I know that's been true in my life, in the lives of those around me, and in the stories told through my research. So I want to help improve people's lives and well-being by helping to ensure autonomy in reproductive decision-making and equity in healthcare delivery. 
Since we're here today to talk about reproductive coercion, I'm hoping you can kind of define this term for me. What do we mean when we say this? Yeah, absolutely. So when I talk about reproductive coercion, I mean other people's behaviors that interfere with someone's pregnancy or use of contraception. And that can be a healthcare provider or a person's partner or even a parent. Can you give some like examples or scenarios of um, ways people might experience reproductive coercion in real life? You mentioned these like handful of relationships where we could see it happen. Um, yeah. Can you just describe them a little bit more for me? Sure. So reproductive coercion from a partner might be something like them destroying your birth control pills or removing a condom during sex without your consent um, or pressuring you to have a baby. Um, whereas reproductive coercion from a healthcare provider might be something like a provider refusing to give a patient a tubal ligation or pressuring a patient who wants to use, for example, condoms as contraception to instead get an IUD because it's more effective and longer acting. I feel like I just heard you describe um, two scenarios that sort of affect somebody's contraceptive desire in two different ways. One, In one case, restricting someone's use from a contraceptive they might want, like um, destroying birth control pills or, or like limiting that access or uh, denying a tubal ligation, denying somebody the, the right to be sterilized if they so desire. And then in the other direction, it sounded like um, pressure to use a, a different method that might be, quote, more effective, but still not align with their wishes, I guess. Does does coercion go in sort of both of those directions? Are they different from each other? Yeah, absolutely. That's such a good question. So um, my colleague, Lee Sindorovich, um, who is a professor here at UW, uh, came up with the distinction between upward and downward coercion, um, which refers to the direction of coercion experienced. Um, so typically this distinct, distinction um, is used when thinking about coercion from a healthcare provider during contraceptive counseling. So um, here, pressure to use birth control is upward coercion, um, and pressure not to use birth control is downward coercion. So to use those examples um, that, I, that I mentioned earlier, a provider refusing to give a patient a tubal ligation would be downward coercion because it's preventing someone from using their desired contraceptive method, whereas pressuring a patient to get an IUD would be upward coercion because it's pressuring someone to use contraception that they didn't want to use. Earlier, you described some of the like relationships where coercion can happen. You mentioned um, like a more personal setting, like a romantic or an intimate relationship, or even within family relationships, and then kind of a more I would think of it as a like a professional setting, like with a healthcare provider. Um, do you consider both of these examples, both in the more personal relationships and the more like professional oriented relationships, the same issue, or do you consider them to be separate topics altogether? I do see it as like two threads of a similar of similar work. Um, it's all tied together kind of under the umbrella of reproductive coercion, but I do see it as two separate threads where one is um, reproductive coercion from experienced from a an intimate partner, 
and the other is coercion experience from a provider. Um, and I've done research um, kind of in both of those threads. Um, where I've where I'm working right now is more in the provider sphere. Um, so I think most of what I'll talk about moving forward today is provider based, but um, it is helpful, I think, um, to make it really clear for people that um, that there's both and that they're um, similar, but not the same. Since this is a focus of your research, do we have any sense or do you have any sense of how common this experience is? Yeah, um, another excellent question. So these are relatively new areas of study. So we don't have um, population level estimates of prevalence, but we do have some studies to give us an idea. Uh, so research suggests that about 8 to 16 percent of women have experienced partner perpetrated reproductive coercion at some point in their lifetime. And then in my current research that's focused on coercion in contraceptive care in the United States, 38 percent of patients who can get pregnant. So that's people who are of reproductive age and were assigned female at birth. 38 percent of that sample um, said that they have experienced contraceptive coercion from a healthcare provider at some point in their lives. And 16% um, experienced contraceptive coercion from a provider during their most recent contraceptive counseling. That feels like a pretty big percentage to me. Um, what do we know or understand about the impacts of this like coercive experience on the people who are experiencing it? Yeah, so research shows us that partner-perpetrated reproductive coercion is associated with several things. Um, it's associated with experiencing other forms of interpersonal violence like sexual assault and bullying, and it's also associated with worse mental health and substance use. Um, we know less about the possible impacts of coercion from healthcare providers just because it's a newer field of study. Um, although I'm doing research on that right now. Um, and my work shows that people who have experienced contraceptive coercion from a provider are less likely to be using the type of contraception they'd like to use. And then in my current research, um, when asked an open-ended question about how their experience of provider-based coercion impacted their life, some people responded that it didn't impact their lives at all or just made them feel frustrated or annoyed. Um, but then others have responded that experiencing contraceptive coercion from a provider made them distrust healthcare providers in the future, makes them seek telehealth um, or online care instead of in-person visits, um, or actually makes them avoid healthcare altogether. And um, to share an example of that, um, one person shared this quote um, that says, quote, this experience has made me not want to go to the doctor anymore and to fix the problem myself. I don't trust that my doctor cares about my problem, end quote. Um, and then a few people um, answered that question, um, actually mentioning that the experience of contraceptive coercion caused specific mental health issues like PTSD, depression, or anxiety. So we definitely need more research to help us understand the impacts of contraceptive coercion. But these stories are kind of a starting point. Um, and for me, contraceptive coercion is problematic at face value, even without fully understanding its impact on a person's life 
because it inherently undermines a person's bodily autonomy. And um, I think one of the participants in my study described her experience of a provider pressuring her to use contraception, even though she wasn't having sex. And in her own words, quote, my autonomy as a human being, as a woman, was not respected. I am abstinent and celibate, which is a choice that I made for my life and my body. And no one has any right to try to interfere with that, end quote. I feel like so many of the examples and quotes you just shared resonated really deeply because I was trying to think of like what what is the opposite side? If if one experience is reproductive coercion where someone heads into a healthcare visit and is not able to get the method of contraceptive they desire or leaves with a method that they did not desire, what what is the the flip side of that? What is is there an a term for the opposite experience where someone's desires are indeed honored and respected in their interaction? I mean, I guess I would say the like kind of ideal um, opposite would be reproductive autonomy. Um, You know, having everything you need, um, including but not limited to um, that positive provider interaction um, to be able to allow you to have reproductive autonomy. Um, but then thinking specifically about kind of the patient provider relationship and the like interpersonal elements therein, um, I guess I would say, you know, patient centered care, um, is the, is what we're striving for, um, where you have providers, um, you know, engaging patients in meaningful conversation to help them, um, to help make sure that they're informed and able to make uh, autonomous decisions about their contraception and, and their reproduction in general. In um, in your research and in the healthcare setting in particular, which I think we'll spend a lot of our time talking about now for the kind of the rest of our are recording together. Um, do we have any sense of what's going on from a provider perspective that might lead to these um, non-autonomous, less than autonomous interactions kind of? Yeah. So this is an area where I'd like to do more research in the future um, to get input from providers about what constitutes coercion from their perspective and why and how they think coercion happens in contraceptive care. Um, But for now, I'd say that, you know, providers are under a lot of pressure themselves, um, for one thing, to see patients quickly. And that doesn't always translate into patient-centered care. Um, In addition, providers don't always agree that patient autonomy is the goal. Um, Sometimes they may see pregnancy prevention as the goal, regardless of patient preferences. And here broader systems come into play beyond that individual relationship between the patient and the provider. Um, You know, for example, societal beliefs that women can't or shouldn't be making decisions for themselves um, and for their bodies and medical care and, um, you know, programs and policies that have really prioritized contraceptive effectiveness over patient priorities. Um, So those are some of the things that I think are contributing to contraceptive coercion. 
I want to talk a little bit about a recent study that um, you shared with me as I was kind of getting ready for this episode. Um, it was a study on contraceptive coercion in healthcare settings in the Appalachian area of the U.S. Uh, can you tell me why your study focused on that specific region of the country and what makes it important for understanding contraceptive coercion and kind of a bigger scale? Yeah, um, that work was a part of a larger study led by a mentor of mine who does a lot of research in the Appalachian region. Uh, people living in Appalachia face a lot of health disparities and they also face barriers to access accessing healthcare related to rurality and high levels of poverty in the area. Um, and all of that is why we did the study about healthcare access and family planning care in Appalachia. Um, I'm also personally invested in the topic because I'm from the outskirts of the Appalachian region in North Carolina, um, and I went to college in the mountains of North Carolina at Appalachian State University. So in addition to your personal connection to the Appalachian region, is there anything that makes this area of our country interesting and unique kind of in terms of reproductive health? Yeah, so I mentioned that people in the Appalachian region face health disparities and specific to reproductive health, um, Appalachians have higher rates than the national average when it comes to gynecologic cancer, unintended pregnancy, adolescent births, and maternal morbidity. So considering those disparities, plus the high religiosity, rurality, and poverty in the region, um, those things really make it both an interesting and a unique context um, in which to understand family planning norms, needs, and healthcare delivery. Are there um, key findings from this study that you can share? And did you learn anything? Do you feel like you learned anything from this study that can be applied out more broadly to the U.S.? Yeah, so that study basically linked contraceptive coercion to patients' contraceptive use. And we found that 37% of Appalachian women of reproductive age had ever experienced contraceptive coercion. Um, so that's over a third of the sample that says that they've experienced contraceptive coercion. Uh, we also found that participants who had experienced contraceptive coercion from a healthcare provider were less likely to be using the type of contraception that they'd like to be using. So this study is a starting point in documenting how coercion and contraceptive care can undermine patients' reproductive autonomy. In terms of applying those findings um, kind of more broadly outside of the Appalachian region, um, you know, we really don't know how this applies in the U.S. more broadly because there's essentially no quantitative research on this topic. Um, I'm doing quantitative research on contraceptive coercion now, um, and I shared some of the numbers from that project earlier. Um, in that study, we're finding that 38% of the national sample of people who can get pregnant experience contraceptive coercion. So that 38% is almost exactly the same frequency in the national sample as the 37% that experienced contraceptive coercion in the Appalachian region. Um, neither of those samples are representative, though, um, and we need, you know, a lot more research to be able to draw definitive conclusions. After hearing you describe your um, studies, it leaves me with kind of two questions. One is... What needs to happen in the research world to arrive at a definitive conclusion about the frequency and impacts of contraceptive coercion in our country? 
And the other is, once that conclusion is hypothetically reached, what's next? How is that information then applied to affect patient experience or affect clinical care? Yeah, absolutely. So I think in terms of next steps for research, um, I really view what I'm working on right now as very preliminary information to help us get an idea of, you know, how common um, coercion is in contraceptive care, um, who is at increased risk of experiencing contraceptive care, um, start to draw connections between experiences of contraceptive coercion and some other things like, um, you know, mental health, um, contraceptive use, um, healthcare behaviors and seeking moving forward, um, things like that. Um, but definitely there will be a need to build on that research um, in one way with with more rigorous samples, with representative samples to be able to speak to these experiences um, more definitively and to be able to start um, making causal connections between those constructs. Um, so I think that that's some of the next steps. And um, I also think it will be really important to kind of triangulate these experiences by um, by speaking to and uh, survey, surveying uh, patients as well as providers. Um, because when you talk to only patients or only providers, um, you know, you're only getting part of the part of the story. So I think it'll be important to to use a variety of research methods and um, research with a variety of populations to really be able to dig in and understand what's going on. Um, I'm also, you know, hoping that we can um, develop and utilize, um, you know, rigorous measures of contraceptive coercion. So I think that that will be a part of some of the next steps, um, you know, digging into what is meant by contraceptive coercion and, and how, how should we measure that construct, um, in research settings? Um, yeah, so I think that that's a lot of the next steps that I see, uh, for this work. And then in terms of, you know, the what then, um, you know, how can we use this information um, and build on it in ways that, um, you know, make a positive impact in people's lives? I would say that we need to come up with creative solutions so that we can um, deliver better care and um, deliver more patient-centered care. Um, and I think that that will mean, um, you know, addressing the interpersonal aspects of contraceptive care um, and helping providers to, you know, recognize and eliminate personal biases from the care that they're delivering. But it will also take systemic solutions um, to, you know, give providers the resources that they need to deliver uh, patient-centered care and, um, you know, kind of shifting the the goal of contraceptive care away from uh, contraceptive uptake and contraceptive, you know, getting people to use methods of contraception that are more effective um, and instead make the, the goal of contraceptive care to be helping patients achieve reproductive autonomy. When I approach this podcast, when I'm getting ready for all of my interviews, I tend to think of them in terms of how can I help a 
any person sort of understand their own health or the health of the loved one and their experiences in healthcare a little bit better. And so I definitely want to ask, you know, why is understanding contraceptive coercion important for people like me, for patients, people who are going into healthcare settings, but also from the provider perspective, why is it important that everyone in that interaction have a solid grounding in contraceptive coercion and reproductive autonomy? From the patient perspective, um, I would say that understanding contraceptive coercion can um, help to reiterate the importance of, of, of reproductive autonomy, um, and it can help patients be prepared to um, kind of advocate for themselves in that um, healthcare and provider space. Um, and I would say that one thing that's interesting that's coming out of the research I'm doing now, um, when I asked people to um, tell me about their contraceptive coercion experiences and the ways that that coercion has impacted their lives, um, a lot of people um, spoke about uh, the ways that the that their experiences with coercion um, have led them to um, really prioritize advocating for themselves in future healthcare encounters. Um, so I think that that's an interesting finding that's coming out of this work um, is that something that can come out of coercion, experiences of coercion, is patients really recognizing and centering the need for advocating for themselves. Um, in terms of providers, I would say that it's critical for healthcare providers to understand that the conversations they have with their patients and the way that they deliver care impacts patients' lives, their autonomy, their health, and their future health seeking. You know, this is not a small number of people who are reporting experiences of coercion in their contraceptive care. So we need to keep doing research to better understand what's going on. Uh, but we also need to act to ensure that patients' autonomy is being centered in contraceptive counseling. Do you have any recommendations or reflections on how both both sides of that patient-provider interaction, both in the healthcare professional realm and in the patient realm, can approach their contraceptive discussions in order to center autonomy and avoid contraceptive coercion? Yeah, I, I guess I would say from the patient perspective, um, just feeling empowered enough to um, advocate for themselves in that space and um, you know, ask for what they need um, and, you know, seek a new provider when that's not happening for them. Um, and then thinking from the provider perspective, I see contraceptive coercion as both an interpersonal and a systemic problem. Um, interpersonally, we need healthcare providers to value the autonomy of their patients, to identify and challenge their own implicit biases, and to work to deliver patient-centered care. But we also need system responses. We need medical education programs and healthcare systems to highlight patient autonomy as a care goal rather than focusing on contraceptive uptake and effectiveness. Um, providers need to have enough time with a given patient in order to really engage in shared decision making. And we need policies and programs that help patients reach and pay for care so that all contraceptive options are actually available. Dr. Laura Swan, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with me today about contraceptive coercion. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. 
The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW-SMPH Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. Communications intern Paige Stevenson supported this episode with research and transcription. You can listen to the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find the UW Department of OBGYN on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the handle at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us in your podcast app and let us know what health issues you'd like to learn about at the link in our episode description. Thanks for listening.